following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Welcome this morning to Fellowship Bible Church. Good to see you all this morning. I hope you will have a wonderful time worshiping with us and uh, worshiping our great God. He is worthy. Good to see a number of folks out who haven't been in a little while or folks visiting. That is an encouragement to our hearts. We know we do have a number of you online as well, uh, so we welcome you again and hope that you'll be able to get a lot out of the service here this morning as we worship together. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn them to Isaiah, please. Isaiah and the 46th chapter. As we mentioned, this chapter does, uh, is in a section where there's a lot of talk about the uselessness of idols. And so we can continue our scripture reading in this segment, chapter 46 of Isaiah, as we continue our journey through the prophet. The word of God says, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Here carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb even to your old age, I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. What a contrast, isn't it, to the idols? They can't carry anything. But God carries Israel and all of his people. Verse 5, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship They bear it on the shoulder, they carry it, and set it in its place, and it stands. From its place it shall not move, though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer, nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this, and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near, it shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion. For Israel, my glory. For Israel, my glory. Amen. All right, let's turn our Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. By the way, just so you don't mistake, I don't mind you drinking coffee whatsoever. Just don't spill it on the carpet. (laughs) 
1 Corinthians chapter 16. We have uh, journeyed through 1 Corinthians now for uh, almost a year and a half, year and maybe four months, and so it's really been our, our pandemic book, as it were, and um, enjoyed doing this study, uh, sometimes to an empty auditorium this past year, chapters 03 and 04, somewhere in there. It's a, it's a challenge to preach to, to an empty room. You try to pretend that you're seeing the people, you know, and there's some kind of interaction, but it's a little tough. Uh, you don't get that feedback, that, that almost tactile feedback, right? Yeah, that's right. No worries, right? <laughs> so uh, 95% or so of the epistle is behind us. We're not uh, introducing. Today we're closing, and we'll see just how far we get, but I didn't want to extend it too, too long. In fact, as we close, I often, uh, when we come to the end of a series, make a request of you all, if you have a book that you think uh, would be wonderful to hear about or a series of messages on a topic, I like to take expositional series on Sunday mornings, although I do sometimes address topics from time to time, usually topics more Sunday nights or Wednesday nights. But in any case, if you have any you know, concerns, any areas you'd like to study, uh, feel free to let me know. Uh, at the door there, send me a message, an email and I will consider those. I don't have any specific plans for what to do after this yet. There's uh, 65 other books I can take, so plenty of options, right? Yes, so I'm looking forward to what the Lord will have us do next. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about just carrying on with 2 Corinthians. Uh, just wanted to give it a little break, but we could do that if you all really want to. Yes, amen. Um, so we're in the conclusion in this long series in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we're going to see some personal plans here, some personal movement of people or personnel movement, if you will, some final commands and then greetings as often make up the end of Paul's letters. So let me just read, starting in verse number 5. Last week we addressed verses 1 through 4. Starting in verse 5, Paul says, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. I hope, for, among other things, to help you to get a sense of the realism of this letter. This is not something that just sits you know, in the Bible and had no connection to the real life of the Corinthian church. Paul was in Ephesus. He had been there for a long time, or was going to be there for a long time, up to about three years. And he says, I'm going to try to stay here until uh, Pentecost. That means that he's there in the springtime, which would be this time of the year. Uh, do you know when Pentecost is this year? Probably didn't think of it. We don't really celebrate it, do we? Yeah, Sunday, May 23rd. Sunday, May 23rd is Pentecost. So if, he, if he's going to stay until Pentecost, you know he's there in uh, March, April, May time frame, and he's telling them, did you notice that, how long he wants to stay with them? I'll go, and I might even spend the winter with you. So here he is, say, in April or early May, 
and I'm planning to do some things this summer and fall, and maybe I'll get to you in the fall, and I'll spend the winter with you. Why would he spend the winter? Because traveling in the modes that they had to travel was not good in the wintertime. And uh, he's talking about lengthy distances. Where he is in Ephesus, if you look at a map, he's got to go either across the sea by boat or he's got to go up and around by land, mostly land, and it's hundreds and hundreds of miles, journeys that you don't take uh, lightly in the middle of wintertime. But that means that Paul will be traveling in the heat of the summer, which also presents its difficulties if you think about it. You all think about your travel plans, don't you? Should we go now or, eh, the weather might not be the greatest, I'll go another time, or we got to pick the week that we go because we don't want it to rain on us and all of that. Well, this is real-life stuff here that Paul is talking about with them. I carry on then with verse number 9. For a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. If Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brothers, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. Okay, he's talking about a gift, probably financial support that they brought to him. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Now, that's where Paul was at the time. He was in Asia, Asia Minor is what he refers to, Ephesus and the churches there. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. That last uh, part that I emphasize in verse 22, let him be anathema, is let him be accursed in English. Mm -hmm. And then the next word is uh, maranatha. If you're reading the King James or maybe, I think it's the New American Standard, you'll see it's a little different there, don't you? You see that it's, it says something to the effect of, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, and then immediately following is the word maranatha. I'll mention that uh, at the end of the message uh, a little bit more in detail, but those are two separate ideas. Make sure you grasp a hold of that in your reading of the Bible, especially if you're reading those two translations. Now, go back to the beginning of the passage. The details of the movement of Paul, Apollos, Timothy, those details are not really the most significant for us. They're very occasional, meaning you know, incidents that happened on that occasion at that time. 
you know, uh, they're, not, they're not something we can kind of take for us. We have our own issues of travel and, and, and back and forth, and our circumstances are entirely different. But the way that Paul and the other men plan and the reasons why they plan their activities is instructive. It's also helpful to know how we should receive ministers of the gospel, particularly here with regard to Timothy. Uh, in the church, we should re- you know, receive them with great respect and care. Now, Paul was planning to take a ship probably over to Macedonia like he had done a few years earlier. Remember Acts 16? He was called over to Macedonia, a man there in a dream calling him, God indicating thus that he must go there and preach the gospel. Started the church at Philippi and then went on to Thessalonica and Berea and then on down to uh, Achaia. He's going over to Macedonia and uh, he's going to pass through there and head south to Corinth. And I, I don't know exactly off the top of my head, but I think it's three to 400 miles of journey to, to do that trip. Then he possibly planned to spend the winter there with them and they could send him on with support to his next destination. Very real life kind of stuff there. He wanted to skip seeing them in the immediate future so that he could spend some more time with them uh, later on in his journeys. Now, he had to continue his ministry in the meanwhile in Ephesus, and he was there for quite some time. Let me turn my Bible back to Acts 19. You can if you wish as well, to Acts 19. Uh, it says that uh, in Acts 19, uh, 1, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth. And by the way, this is around, right around the time when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Okay, So if you were to read a chronological Bible, you'd probably come up to Acts 19 and 20 in that area, and then the Bible would send you over to 1 Corinthians and have you read that and then come back to the book of Acts in uh, 19.1. So while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them. So Apollos actually was there, and then he left, and Paul was asking him to go back there later on in our passage, but it, wouldn't, it wasn't going to work out at that time. So then go down to chapter 19 and Acts verse 10. This continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus both Jews and Greeks. Now, Paul, while he was there, wrote 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and two other letters that are lost to history and uh, were not Bible letters. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been lost. God would have seen to it that way. But we know that uh, he wrote several times to the church. In fact, traveled back and forth several times as well. Why? Because this church was riddled with difficulties and he was could I say on a human level, desperately concerned that he would not lose those testimonies, those lighthouses on a hill for the communities in which they were because the the early church depended on their success in moving forward. So what, what was the reason he wanted to stay in Ephesus and not go to Corinth to help with the problems there? Well, he says in verse 9, a great and effective door has been opened. We wouldn't use necessarily, well, we, we might because of the Bible here, we might use the word door, but we might also use the word window. A window of opportunity has opened, and now we have to make use of that window. So the iron is hot, Paul says, must strike while that iron is hot. And he's having a very fruitful ministry there. 
Evidently, people are coming from far and wide to Ephesus to receive instruction in the Bible. And he holds this school there for two years plus, three years. He basically has a seminary going in the city of Ephesus. And people from Colossae had come, Laodicea, Hierapolis, other cities probably as well. And and the gospel goes out to that uh, continent of Asia, that uh, peninsula, that large peninsula, if you will. So he has a great opportunity. But also... Notice what it says at the end of verse 9, and there are many adversaries. I caution us to think this, that, you know, sometimes people have a kind of a persecution complex and they find adversaries everywhere that are really out to get them, but they're not really out to get them. Um, And so we don't necessarily measure success by the number of our adversaries, but sometimes we do, okay? You just have to know and be uh, kind of uh, realistic about what is going on. Remember back in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, if you just flip back one page or so there in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, 32, Paul's circumstances there in Ephesus, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32. In this portion, he's saying, if the resurrection is not true, why have I done all that I've done for the gospel? It's useless if there's no resurrection. He says in verse 32, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know, Forget all the hardships for the gospel if there's no resurrection. Just live it up as we detailed in our series in 1 Corinthians 15. But when he fought with beasts at Ephesus, do you remember what I said there? He was doing? Was it lions and tigers and bears? No, it was, it was false teachers. It was Jewish opposition that was trying to get rid of him. And you can excuse the man for using the word beast to refer to such people. I mean, after all, they did in other cities cast stones upon his head and attempt to murder him. In fact, almost did one time. Terrible, terrible stuff. So he wasn't too enamored with those folks who were in opposition to the gospel. Fact is, neither was Jesus. You remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 23? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You know, you traverse land and sea to make one disciple, and when you're done with him, you've made him twice the son of hell as yourselves. Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God, offering himself as the king, and he says, you guys are shutting up the door of the kingdom to those that are trying to enter in, causing all kinds of offenses to those, even those little disciples of mine. Is it better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were cast into the sea than what's going to happen to you? So, you know, we can kind of get a little too politically correct and say, whoa, how could Paul call them beasts? I mean, they're, they're human beings. Yes, they are. Yes, they are, but they do beastly things. They do evil things. And so he's calling a spade a spade, and it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's not nice. But even our Lord Jesus had to do that as well, to speak straightly, to talk directly about what was happening. So Paul was facing that difficulty in Corinth, I'm sorry, in Ephesus, as he wrote to the people at Corinth. 
Paul mentions he's going to stay there till uh, Pentecost, so this is the springtime of the year. Um, and he gives kind of this, lays out these plans, but if you read on in 2 Corinthians, you're going to find something interesting. What he writes there indicates that he had to have what? A change of plans. So these plans weren't set in stone. And sometimes we have to do that as well, don't we? We kind of lay our best plans out, and then we realize, uh-oh, I forgot something on my calendar, or I can't do that because, or my car broke down, and so I've got to tend to that before I can go to that place. And that's just a part of life. What happened, though, is the Corinthians, some in the church, were so cynical, I suppose, that they said, look, Paul... He tells us he's going to do one thing, and then he does another thing. What kind of person is this? And so he has to address that matter in 2 Corinthians. But as it stands right here, he's giving out these plans. Next, he talks about Timothy, the second in our personnel list. And he just spends a couple of verses with Timothy. And you have to imagine Timothy's circumstances. Timothy is an understudy of Paul. He's a young man relatively speaking to Paul, say Paul was 20 or 30 years older than Timothy probably. And he's going into a church. Paul's asked him to go there. And Paul says, look, see that he may be with you without fear. Why would he say that? Well, we got this young guy coming in to the church and he knows that Paul has been kind of hard on the Corinthian church. And whatever Paul has done, since Timothy is his understudy, he's going to be like, you know, the the kind of dismay that people have against Paul is going to be reflected on Timothy, right? They're upset at Paul for telling them that they've been, you know, uh, not moral in their church. They need to deal with some serious issues. They've had problems with marriage. They've had problems with division and disunity and all of that. And so there are some in the church that are going to be upset at Paul. That could be reflected down to Timothy. Even worse... Timothy probably knows that the church has factions in it already. And you remember what those factions were? Some said, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Christ. And Timothy knows, my name isn't on the list. Nobody's following me. I'm just a chump. No, he's not. He's a minister that's doing the same work as the Apostle Paul. And Paul says, basically, don't despise him. He has to tell Timothy that, don't let people despise your youth. Why? How does he do that? Does he say, look, don't despise my youth, people? No. He demonstrates spiritual maturity so that when they look at him, they say, boy, he might look young, but he doesn't act young. He doesn't act unwise or foolish. He acts like the part that he's supposed to be as a minister of the gospel. So that's how Paul, or rather Timothy, would deal with this issue of being despised just because he's a young man without a lot of gray hairs perhaps yet on his head. So that's what Timothy's situation is. So Paul is encouraging the church, look, take it easy on Timothy. He's not me, but you need to hear what he has to say because he does, verse 10, the work of the Lord as I also do. Very important that the church receive its ministers that way. Um, You know, a church that, that maybe has had a pastor for a long time and then a young man comes to assist that pastor or to take the pulpit because he's retiring or something like that, you've got to give him a little space. 
you got to give him a little love and a little care and concern. And he's not going to be a 40, 50-year veteran pastor until he gets to be a 40 or 50-year veteran pastor, right? Yeah, that's, how it, that's just how it is. He cannot fill shoes that he hasn't grown into yet. So give him the space. And uh, I'll say this for our church. You folks have been very kind to me that way in the last 20 years. And, uh, and, and Jansen, I know, would testify the same thing. This is, a, this is a great church to grow up in in ministry. And I commend you folks for that, uh, for your stability and for your patience and for your sound doctrine. And we just need to keep it up and uh, keep it on up until the Lord returns. So uh, hopefully we would be a good church for a guy like Timothy, even if we had a few little mm, foxes spoiling the vines, so to speak, in the church. We hope that not to be the case, but that's Timothy. Now, Apollos, Apollos is a really, it's one of my favorite guys. I wish I knew more about him in the scriptures, but you hear of him in Acts 18, starting in verse 24, and I'm going to go back there and read that section because talk about a, a fellow who has some skills, you know. We would say today, he's got some mad skills, you know, preaching. Uh, he had a few holes in his knowledge, but that got, those got plugged. Yep. Acts 18 and verse 24. Now it says, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria. Well, there you go, right there. That's, there's a big educational center. Uh, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he was a little behind the times, kind of a lot behind the times, but he was, you know, doing well with what he knew. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. I can imagine Apollos booming out the message of repentance, just like John the Baptist, and saying, you must be born again in effect, being, be repentant in the things of God against your sin and towards God and all of that. And he preaches that boldly. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, uh, converts, uh, early converts to Christianity, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. That is such a touching verse to me. They took him aside quietly and said, look, here's some new information you need. And boy, I bet he soaked that up just like anything. And it says, when he desired to cross to Achaia, and that's where Corinth is, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Well, that is a marvelous word. He, he knew the Old Testament scriptures. Now he knew about Christ, and he connected the two dots together and said, this is the Christ that we're preaching to you. This is the one that John the Baptist preached, the one that, who, that John said, look, I, I'm not even worthy to untie or carry his sandal. He is so great that the greatest born among women would say, I'm compared to him. And Apollos is preaching that message of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it's still as necessary today as it was then. We need more Apolloses in our churches today to preach that message. And so while he was there, then Paul came to Ephesus, and that was where we picked up in chapter 19 before. Um, and it's interesting because Apollos now, he's, he's um, really a full-fledged itinerant gospel minister, 
and he's, uh, you know, got his wings, so to speak, and he, the Apostle Paul wishes for him to go back to Corinth to help them. And Apollo says, eh, I can't right now, Paul. I've got to do something else. Then later I'll be able to go. I think it's very interesting that Apollos felt that he could say that to the great apostle. He knew was a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have, you know, in our lives, we have to make kind of similar decisions as what Apollos had to make here, don't we? We have to weigh and balance the circumstances that we face and decide, are we going to do this or are we going to do that? You have to do that all the time in your life, you know, just with different things. But I'll put it in a ministry context for myself. I would love to be able to just snap my fingers and be in places where people have invited me to be and minister and, and do what I can, but I can't. Uh, you know, I have invitation kind of standing open to go to South Africa and one to visit New Zealand. And it would be all wonderful, you know, to go there. But I have a family and I have ministry and I have, you know, two mission ministries that I'm involved in here. And so I've had to limit my em- emphasis in, you know, kind of missions work to South America, just one place where I'm more, most actively involved. And I, I don't want to say no to those things. But in a sense, I have to be like Apollos there and say, mm, I can't do that. Maybe, you know, after my family, the kids are grown, maybe when certain other things happen or, or whatever. Um, but it's a lot to try to go everywhere and do everything. And so you have to say no. We're responsible to weigh our circumstances to make wise decisions about those things. You know, sometimes I've had to say, no, I, I can't go to that faraway funeral. Um, I would love to. I would love to show respect to the deceased and to the family, but it just doesn't work right now. I, I, I spoke to a, a brother who is a pastor at the funeral for Chuck on uh, Friday. There were three pastors there, so it was a very long service. No, it wasn't too bad. But um, he uh, said, you know, I, I, I can't stay for lunch. I've got to go. And uh, I said, what's going on? He said, well, I've got somebody in the hospital in Toledo. And so he's up in Howell, already off of his um, kind of, you know, beaten trail, which is down in Adrian, in his case. And so he's up in Howell, then he's got to drive to Toledo, which I don't know how long that is, but it's over an hour's drive for sure, right? Hour and a half, maybe. So he's going to visit somebody in the hospital. I said, listen, brother, I totally understand. Don't feel bad. You go minister to the living. We can't minister now to the dead. We minister to the living, and so you've got to make those choices and um, and do that. So he he had uh, he had a tough choice to make that day to minister to Joyce and her family or to this other, and so he kind of split split his time between. And it was a blessing to hear him want to minister like that. I was glad to hear that he could go to make a hospital visit. By the way, that's a good thing. Um, I haven't visited the hospital in a long time, so okay. Uh, Paul gives some now commands after the personnel movement, starting in verse number 13. And I'll just give you these five commands that he gives in summary, and it would be nice to just meditate on these for a minute, I think, even though they're very short. He starts with watch, watch, and he moves on to the others. But this final exhortation to the church is meant to kind of package up what he has said and say, listen, 
In this case, pay attention. Keep awake. Okay, we're going to talk about being woke and what that means sometime in the future, but I get kind of upset about that word because the Bible used the idea of being awake 2,000 years ago, and it tells us to be awake regarding our doctrine, sin, righteousness. Those are the kinds of things we need to be awake to. We need to watch. We need to be vigilant. We need to be alert. Do not be asleep at the wheel of your church. Do not be asleep at the switch, my friends. Paul is not speaking about, you know, like a, a parent to a teenage driver. Pay attention. Or a, a parent of a small child. Pay attention when you cross the street. Watch both ways. He's not speaking about a physical paying attention. He's talking about a spiritual paying attention. He's talking about not being in a catatonic state when it comes to church, when, when it comes to false teaching coming in, or the church just kind of becoming centralized upon itself and not thinking about how to serve others in the community how to, by, by giving the gospel to them. Um, you know, about becoming um, what, nostalgic about how wonderful our church has been over all these years and all of this sort of stuff. Look, we always have to be pushing out. We always have to be growing. We always have to be reaching others. We always have to be teaching the word. We have to be watching and be careful not to become lazy. It's easy to let down our guard and, and as I mentioned earlier, let some little foxes in to the teaching or practice of the church. We don't want to do that. Paul says, watch, pay attention. I guess you could almost say paying attention is half the battle, right? Because then you'll know what you see and you'll be able to do something about it. Then he says, stand fast in the faith. The verb stand is used both literally and metaphorically, so it means stand physically, but it also means to be steadfast, firm, and stable. It's the opposite of falling into doctrinal error, into immorality. It's the opposite of falling into bad thinking, bad language, and so on. You need to stand fast in the faith. We're to be stable. Now, once you've become established in the faith, you're a new believer, say, at the beginning. You've learned the basics of the, of the gospel. You've been taken through, say, a curriculum on, on uh, discipleship. You know the basics of the Bible. You've been reading the scriptures. You're grounded and firm. You are told then to hold the line. There's no need for movement. If this church believes the gospel of Jesus Christ that one is born again by faith in Christ alone, that that faith is a repentant faith, that that faith is a Godward faith, that our lives are to be lined up with Jesus Christ. If we believe those basic things, and of course I'm not giving you all of them because it's, uh, I'm summarizing right now, but if we believe those, there's no far movement that's necessary. Why do churches always have to talk about changing all the time? At the core, the fundamentals, the basics, our church should be the same as it was 40 years ago when it began in the summer of 81. It should be basically the same. Of course, there's little things that change, but the fundamental core ideas, doctrines, practices always stay the same. I'm, I'm okay with that. I hope you're okay with that. 
I'm not much for this kind of innovation, you know. Um, and people say, well, it's always the same. Good. Good it's always the same, you know. We're preaching the Word of God. We're worshiping through song. We're praying together. There's a stability here. You can go off and out into the world and find all kinds of things that, you know, that tickle your senses and all of that sort of stuff, but eventually, my friends, you will end up coming back to what is sound and stable, and I pray that that will be this place until the Lord returns. Then he says, not only watch, pay attention, stand fast, you know, don't move, but he says, be brave. Be brave. Man, this is so good today. Be brave. This comes from the verb to act like a man. To act like a man. It's actually got the, the you know, andros, that, that Greek prefix or word. It's got that built onto the front of that verb. If I were writing the um, New Living Translation, you know how I would translate that? Man up. That's what it would be. Man up. Be brave. Man up. Um, be valiant for the truth. Be courageous. Do not be scared. Do not be a wimp. Men are not to be women. Women do a great job of being women. Yeah, don't they? Yeah. But men are to be men. We're to do the hard tasks. We're to make the hard decisions. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transition to the spiritual application of this in a moment. Protect the women and children. Work two jobs if you need to. Exactly. Being effeminate as a man is not a virtue. But that's what the society is teaching you. Men, you're toxic if you're a man. You need to be more like a woman. No. 50, 51% of the world is already women. We don't need more women. We need more men. Okay? I'm not trying to say anything against women. You understand what I'm saying, right? Women are women. Men are men. Hmm. There is a difference there, isn't there? Yeah. But he says, be a man. You know, when, when people say, you know, don't go to church, it's dangerous, like they have lately, we have to say, look, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give in to that attitude of fear. I'm going to be brave. Sometimes we have to... Now, this is where it's not just applicable to men, but to men and women. Spiritually speaking, we have to man up to stand up to what is wrong, to stand against it, no matter what the cost is socially or otherwise. You know, they may try to tax us out of existence. They may try to close the doors, put a fence around the building like they did at that Grace Life Church in Canada. You know what? We're going to have to meet anyway. We're going to have to worship God anyway because we don't bow to Caesar on areas of worship. We bow to God only. We have to be brave and we have to be strong. Again, we're not talking about bench pressing ability. Some of us have that very well. But we're talking about spiritual strength, strong in the faith, strong in the word, strong in self-control, strong in morality, strong in defending the faith. Strong in faithfulness and kindness, strong in righteousness. That's what we have to be, strong, not weak, not wimpy Christians, okay? Not pathetic Christians, Brother Mike, not 
wimpy Christians, strong Christians. And then finally, Paul says in verse 14, let all that you do be done with love. All your things in love be. It's kind of a direct translation from the Greek. Love toward God and love toward your neighbor. These two virtues should be operational all the time. Keep your love a well-oiled machine. Okay, it should not be locked up on yourself. You know, we all love ourselves, don't we? Love God and love other people in the church and outside of the church. Let everything you be you do be done with love. If we not well, let me say this: If the Corinthians followed all this, they wouldn't have been tricked into you know these lawsuits and this guy that's in immorality. Like they're proud about him being in their church and the marriage issues that they had and all that, they would be alert to those things and would know what to do with them. Paul then goes on in this section of exhortations and he talks about a man named Stephanus. Stephanus, maybe you would say, who was notable among the converts in Corinth. He was the first fruits of Achaia. You see that? To Christ. First convert in that region of the world. That is quite a statement, isn't it? Uh, think about yourself. Um, were you the first convert in your family? Maybe not. Not in my case. I have a rich family history of people who believe in Christ. But maybe some of you were. Maybe you, you were like, you know, I was the first one in my family to go to college. I was the first one in my family to come to faith in Christ. The Corinthians knew this family. They knew that Stephanus was the first to come to Christ. They knew the family took the gospel up with gusto. I mean, can you imagine a guy who's just living in idolatrous Corinth, encounters the gospel, his life has totally changed, he becomes a minister, deacon or pastor, I don't know what he was, probably in some kind of role like that. And he takes up serving the saints in a serious way. Not only did they know that, but they were to take that as an example for themselves. Look at verse uh, 16. You also submit to such and everyone who works and labors with us. Verse 18, therefore acknowledge such people. So Paul tells them, look, you need to follow the good examples of spiritual leadership that you have around you. Do you have any good examples of spiritual leadership in your life? Grandfather? Husband, wives, pastor, I hope, assistant to the pastor back there, an example. Some of these brothers sitting around the church, examples for you. Some of the older women in the church that have followed Christ for many years, follow them. Follow them. Acknowledge their example and their leadership in the church. Uh, there's a number of passages that I have in the notes there for you. I don't have time to go to them all, but talk about this idea of leadership, following leadership, uh, following examples like the Apostle Paul. And then Paul goes on to say uh, this interesting little thing in verse 17. He says, um, I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Paul was glad to see other Christians come by, to stay with him and to minister to him. I must hasten on. You can look at the notes for more details there. Pretty full notes for you today. Look at the closing greetings in the last few words. 
He says, the churches of Asia greet you. Hierapolis, Laodicea, Colossae, these churches send Christian greetings to those believers. I'm most often careful to do that based on these examples in scriptures when I go to another church. So you will remember on Friday I said I, when I first got up, I, I bring greetings to the people from Fellowship Bible Church in Ann Arbor to you folks and told them we're praying for them and for Joyce and her family as a church. So I went as a representative of each and every one of you. You were all standing behind me as I said that, saying, we're praying for you. We are with you in your grief. And this is the kind of thing when Paul says, look, the churches of Asia greet you. This is a precious fellowship, my friends. This you cannot get anywhere else in the world in any other way. This kind of connection in life and beyond life. And so they were deeply meaningful connections that were being passed in those words of greeting. He then says to them about how they greet one another. He says, uh, all the brothers, well, and I skipped over Aquila and Priscilla. They had been in Corinth, and now they're in Ephesus. They had gone back and forth, and uh, so they knew a number of the believers there, and they send their greetings. Perhaps their work had taken them away. They couldn't stay there at that place, and so they send their greetings as well. And then Paul says how to greet one another. He says, to do so with a holy kiss. Almost inconceivable today, isn't it? That you would greet somebody with a holy kiss. You know, it would be, an, it would be, a, it would be a COVID kiss today. You wouldn't want to do that. So what do we do? Well, I think it's interesting how culture changes over time. And I've, teach, I've taught on this before, and I taught you that this is a culturally appropriate warm, affectionate greeting between believers that happened during that time, and in fact, even still today. I've told you about our trips to South America and how this kind of greeting goes on even today. Well, maybe not today, but when I was there, say, a year and a half or two years ago, it was current there at that time. And perhaps the 1918 pandemic wiped it out in the United States. I don't know uh, how the greetings were back 100 years ago, but... um, you know, it's something like today, you know, people like don't want to shake hands. Uh, I'm glad for those handshakes, but uh, when, when you wish to share them. But, uh, you know, maybe there's some cultural differences that happen, and that's fine. This command, I don't think, is one that has to be uh, followed with wooden literalism. I think it is to be followed culturally. You should be greeting one another with whatever warm expression there is in this culture. You know, a, I got a warm elbow bump or two the other day, okay? I, could un, I know because I can see the expression on the person's face, how they're feeling, how they're thinking. That's part of the whole interaction. You know when somebody's cold as ice, right? Or when they're warm, and that's what's going on here. He's saying greet one another with this, with this uh holy kiss here with whatever mechanism it is that you use for a warm, affectionate greeting. There's no sexual overtone here at all to this kiss. And in the cultures where it's practiced, there isn't either. Now, Paul then in 21 gives his salutation. He closes the letter with his own handwriting. Why would he do that? Well, first of all, it gives it a personal touch. You know, it's not just 
a typewritten letter. Well, it wasn't typewritten, of course. It was written out by a secretary, an amanuensis. But he writes his little statement there and puts his little John Hancock on the bottom. So it gives it a personal touch, but also what it does is it authenticates the letter as being real. In uh, 2 Thessalonians, he had to tell the church, look, don't be troubled, as if by letter from us that the Lord's return has already occurred. No, he said, that's, that's not the case. You know what I taught you when I was there with you. And then he ends the letter by saying, this is the signature or the, the sign that I make with every letter. And he put his name at the bottom. By this means, the Corinthians would know, yep, that's legit. That's really the Apostle Paul. And why would he have to do that? Well, do you know how much influence the Apostle Paul had throughout the Roman Empire? There were people that wanted to cash in, no doubt, on that influence and take it from him or abuse it by making people think they were him and to teach their false doctrine to get it into the churches through that mechanism. So Paul was having none of it, and he gave this word by his own hand. And then he says anybody who wants to bring false doctrine into the church, anyone who would forge a letter as if from me or whatever other means, if they do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let them be accursed. The most famous passage where this word is used is Galatians 1, 8 and 9. Remember, if anyone teaches any other gospel, let him be accursed. That's the word anathema. Okay, So it, it, it just means accursed of God, condemned, destined for destruction. Do you know where you find that word in the, in the Old Testament of the Bible? Not the exact same word, but the Hebrew version of it is when God puts something under the ban or devoted it to destruction. So when God told the people to go into Jericho, what did he say? Don't touch anything. You know, and then what happened? Oh, Achan got in there and messed things up. He took some of the gold and silver and whatever the garments and wanted them for himself. He coveted them. Well, that was not right because God had devoted that whole thing to destruction. Men and women, children, animals, the whole thing, burn it up. Why he decided that, that's up to him, okay? Uh, sounds harsh to our modern ears, but that's God. He's the judge of all the earth. He always does right. So we're going to leave that question for, for God. But when, when Achan took that stuff, he took the ban to himself. He took the curse, the anathema to himself, and he became uh, liable to the same punishment that was given to those who had lived ungodly before God in that city of Jericho. And, and make no mistake about that, these people that were, uh, that were at war with Israel were not like angels, okay? Child sacrifice, all kinds of wickedness. They, they could not say, we're innocent God and we don't deserve anything. No, they, they had their problems. But anyway, we'll leave that again for another time. So Paul pronounces this curse when he says, let them be accursed, this is a command. It's not a, a permission or an option. It is that he is going to accurse them. And, and somebody today will say, that sounds kind of rough. I mean, that's harsh. You know, shouldn't God accept me? Listen carefully. 
why would God accept you if you don't accept him? Everybody demands that God accept them. Like, with no change, no, like, like they're the boss. God, you've got to take me. You know, no terms and conditions here. And I'm scratching my head saying, why would God do that if you reject him your whole life? So it doesn't make sense to me why people would demand. Well, I know why they want to, because they want to live like they want to live, and then they want to get all the goodies in heaven. It doesn't work like that. If, you're not, if you don't believe in God, then he doesn't believe in you. You know, if you don't trust God, there's no personal relationship there between you and God and for you to have an enjoyment of of what heaven is. So they will be accursed, Paul says, who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question for us is, do we love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I love him? Do you love him? This is the same exact question as asking, are you a Christian? Do you love the Lord? Are you a follower of Jesus? Do you love him? Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe the gospel? Do you love him? These are all the same question under different words. That's all. You can't have somebody that says, yeah, I believe the gospel, but I don't love Jesus. He's a little bit too, you know, a little too weird for me. No, that, that's, not, that's not what a Christian is. That's not the gospel. When you come to faith in Christ, you love him. You have no, you have no choice because you realize how wonderful he has been to give you eternal life. And you want him to come along soon. And so you say, like Paul, O Lord, come. There was another apostle who said the same thing. John, Revelation 22. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And um, I feel the same today. I know you, many of you do as well. You know, I hope you're not so wrapped up in your life that you're thinking, boy, I just hope the Lord just stays away for a little while. Oh, Lord, come. This is the word maranatha, and the difficulty with some translations is they've just taken the word from Greek, changed the letters into English, and plopped it on your desk and told you, you figure it out. Maranatha. What is Maranatha? You know, the name of a music company? Uh, Is it, um, you know, the person who doesn't love the Lord there, anathema maranatha? That's what the King James looks like. When I read it for years, I was like, what does that mean? Well, what we should do is take anathema and turn it to accursed. That's called translation instead of transliteration. And we take maranatha and we do the best we can with that. And it seems that it comes originally from Aramaic, but it means, oh, Lord, come. Oh, Lord, come. So translate it into English so that us poor English readers can understand it. Oh, Lord, come. So Paul is calling to the Lord to come quickly to rapture the church. And in the meanwhile, he closes with these words, precious words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you in Christ Jesus. Amen. No better words to end with. Now you might say, why grace? Don't I have grace? If you're a believer, yes, you've been graced with salvation. But I think there's not a one of us who would say, don't give me more grace. I need more grace. Why more grace? Because there's more trials around the corner. Why more grace? Because there are more difficulties that I'm going to face. There are more sins that are are tempting me. I need more grace. I want that from God. So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and be multiplied to you, Fellowship Bible Church. 
and to all of us. And then our love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Look at that. The Apostle Paul, despite all the problems, loved these people. Let that sink in for a minute. These people, you might read this book, and if you kind of have a certain harsh mindset, you might say, oh, these are rotten eggs. I mean, why would, why would I love them? Oh, my friends. You know, you love your spouse, right? She or he's been rotten sometimes. Yeah, because that's what God did for us. We were rotten too. And he loved us and gave his son, the only begotten, for our sins. Thank God for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word today. Thank you for loving and caring for us, loving us and giving us the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, take our lives now and use them in this way. Help us to be strong and brave and steadfast, doing everything in love, and to receive ministers and missionaries like this church did and was instructed to do by the apostle. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.